0: In the Philippines, the nation's official religion is Roman Catholicism, which is the faith I was raised in. However, before we were colonized and Christianized mainly by the Spanish and the U.S., my dad would tell me the stories from when the indigenous people of Philippines believed in many different gods and the way everything in nature had or was a spirit. He would tell me and my siblings of these spirits that protected the trees and the rivers, the rocks, the caves, the animals, everything out in nature, um, which meant that you should take care of our environments and our fellow humans, not because not only because it's this considerate and decent thing to do, but also because if you are disrespectful or you do not take care of the environment, there are these uh, supernatural beings that'll give some kind of um, consequence or punishment because of the wrong that you did. Um, My dad grew up hearing these stories, and he very much passed on this practice of oral storytelling to me um, and my siblings. Um, He would tell us these stories a lot when we were out camping, especially um, growing up because we were outside and we have these different traditions in our family, like um, especially during holidays or during special events like camping, for example. We would make a little mini meal to offer up to the nature spirits um and we would do a prayer um when collecting firewood or even going into the bathroom outside. Um, In Ilocano folklore, um, which is part of where my dad is from, um, there are these spirits in every tree called mangmangik. So before cutting down trees, the woodsmen, or even before gathering the branches from the tree, my dad would always tell us to say, um, oh, bari bari, which is like a very shortened prayer from this longer poem prayer that huntsmen and woodsmen and farmers would say. And this prayer is basically just asking for the Mangmangiks forgiveness and for permission for collecting their materials and just paying respects to them with that prayer Um, and then he'd say oh if you forgot to say this prayer or if you were disrespectful and you didn't care about how you were impacting this tree um, then the the spirit that my are going to give you some kind of consequence for your disrespect
1: all right y'all so everyone knows that childcare is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there, yet we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine tune your skills and grow more in depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCASTS are designed to help you learn on the go. Here are another perspective spark debate, bait, <laughs> heck, even agree with us. But honestly, remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. Welcome to Mapcast, a podcast ran by two beautiful Bold. I'm trying to think of all the B words. <laughs> <In my laughs> bodacious. Oh, so, bodacious. <laughs> no. No, no, it is a color. My name is Mike Brown. My pronouns are he, him, and I am the Senior Community Engagement Manager for Hilltop Children's Center Educator Institute. And I am joined by...
2: It's me, uh, Nick Taronis, or Taronis, if you don't want to do your r and I go with pronouns he/him, and I am the current uh, preschool program director at Daybreak Star Preschool. And we are joined by—it's
0: me, Rihanna Buddha. I have she/her pronouns, and I'm currently an educator at Hilltop Children's Center and Educator Institute.
2: Rihanna, I—I uh, I, I enjoyed listening to your story in the first uh, and and what you were just describing what. Came to my mind immediately was you know all uh, especially being here at daybreak. Um, there were a lot of uh, connections to indigenous practices and beliefs and principles, and and really I think like globally a lot of people had carried these beliefs, but at some point I, we we've been thrown off that tract. But the word that um, that came to mind was reverence right giving reverence to the idea of what we uh to what is being taken and what should be what is being taken should be returned uh back into the earth whether that's like literally by composting your food for example or by giving thanks um because i think even by giving thanks and a sense of reverence there's energy that's being put back into it and you know with this there's 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 so many stories around the world, and and your father gave you this story and this piece of information. Why do you think your father uh, gave you this particular story, and what were the sort of messages that were behind it that he was trying to communicate to you and your family?
0: Yes, I with all of my dad's stories, um, it. I just remember um, him very much launching into stories and it was always a reflection of whatever was happening um, in the moment. <laughs> um, my dad, when we were would go out camping or when be, we would be sitting down and this happened in our family or this happened in the world, um, he would tell us these stories that he grew up with or make up stories um, to create that discussion um for what's going on and so with this particular story about um the tree spirits or the um it was uh a lot while we were camping um and that was a really favorite thing of um, my family to do growing up, um, just being out in nature, and then growing up moving around a lot, there was always kind of a place to camp. <laughs> so that was what we did. Um, and my both of my parents are have always been very intentional about, um, you need to take care of all the things around you the way that they take care of you and so that's uh their like your family um as I'm an older sister and so you need to take care of your family but then also we when we are outside we throw our things away we clean up after ourselves we leave places um better than when we first got there um that value was very much instilled in us and i with this story that was just another way for him to communicate that with us and to teach us. Us and tell us, you know, we need to take care of our environment. And then, of course, with that added, like, and there's tree spirits <laughs> who are also looking out, if not us.
1: <laughs> I wonder about how much of that, those stories, that intentionality from your father, from your family, um, from your community, how much has that influenced you as an educator how do you do you think that you still use those tenets and those values in the classroom or in your learning environment
0: oh very much so (laughs) when I think about um my childhood and the way that my dad would just launch into these stories or even now um going camping as an adult um with my family and we have all these younger cousins um and things and I see my dad doing the same thing but now as an adult I'm like you just how did you get into that story (laughs) Um, I totally find myself doing the same thing, especially when I would tell my students about my, these stories, my Filipino, my spirit stories. Um, I try, I always, at the end of the day, try to reflect, oh, like, why did I, why did we have that conversation or why did this happen today? And when I think of whenever I would tell spirit stories or Filipino um, myths or folklores, I would think, oh, I, told, I just started... <laughs> Start talking about it <laughs> like my dad would. <laughs> um, but growing up, that was my foundation. It was very part of who I am, and it's very much a reflection of how I teach too.
1: <laughs> no, and I think that's that's really good for me to know because I'm mm-hmm. like, why is Rihanna always telling me stories? <laughs> so you're trying to teach me something rather than tell me I should be doing something different. So now I, I now
2: I know what you're trying to do. <laughs> These yeah, stories and,
0: are
2: fun <laughs> yeah and you know i think when i when i'm hearing you say that and and you know i've uh recently taken on the uh when parents are asking me oh it's just sent, uh, typical parenting advice right or whatever typical is quote unquote um oftentimes i ask and, it, and usually the answer is you know like how many have you been a parent before and they're like no and if this is a first-time parent and i'm like you know, we, and generally we go off of what, how we were parented, what was modeled to us. And a lot of the times taking that idea and thinking about, um, the idea of stories and if we even bring it on a macro level of like religion, for example, these stories and these folklores and these tales often have a deep rooted, uh, understanding of developing a moral compass And that moral compass, from what I'm hearing you talk about, is how do we take care of, how do we be empathetic, right? And so, um, I don't know, I'm just going to, I don't have a question there, but just more as an observation. um, And if you want to comment on that.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. Thank you, Nick. Um, I mean, yeah, with uh, a lot of the stories that my dad um, would tell us or even my mom to both of them, um, the values that they instilled in us uh, were very much rooted in this idea of um, you do for others um, what they would do for you. And um, in in Philippines and my family and my culture, it's so very much a collectivist kind of society. And so you are you in your community and what you can do for your community. Um, and that's, uh, that's a value that I hold. And that value is, The love for my family and my friends, family is a really big word that includes a lot of people um, in a lot of different ways. Um, And yeah, in a lot of my bad stories and stories that I tell now, um, again, it's very, I think it's a reflection of just um, the values that I was taught um, and the values in my culture
2: and it seems to me that, like you know, storytelling, um, and especially in various cultural contexts, and even as educators as we are, we give stories because there's, uh, again, an uh, an orientation to the moral compass that we're trying to give to children. Um, <laughs> like today, uh, you know, it being Orange Shirt Day, and I took, I I had to be in the classroom today, or I got, I had the opportunity, I should say, to be in the classroom, and. I went for a walk through the woods with this young group and I told them and Mike's heard the story of Basket Woman. And so I told him the story of Zunika or Basket Woman, who's this, you know, um, it's a Salish legend, um, but also uh, it takes various forms throughout different native cultures in North America. And it's essentially a 10 foot witch who wanders the wood looking for children who've wandered too far from their, uh, from the adults, right? And, you know, I kept emphasizing this is not a real story, even though I'm saying we're, walk- it, you know, kids walking through the woods and whatnot. And, um, but, you know, I, when I think about that story and, and and I was thinking about what was the underlying moral, was like, hey, don't wander too far from us because something dangerous could happen to you. Now, there's a different way we could, like, approach that rather than giving them this, like, crazy, like, figure to think about because, you know, imagination is so... Um, so vivid at that age that like, of course they, you know, as soon as I started describing Zunica, they just kind of stopped and were like, what the Aww. hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I, I think, you know, storytelling again, is a way for us to help like orient and calibrate moral compasses in a way,
1: you know, it, it got me thinking. When you were talking to me, and I was like, huh, I wonder who's the better storyteller in your family. I'm not gonna put you on the spot, but. It's me. (laughs) Silly me. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Mike. You know, the guy you spent a good 20 minutes just listening to. Nick and I love doing these. But do you know what's more fun? Doing these in person. And that's exactly what we've started to do. We've hit the road. Well, kind of, sort of. Because, you know, (laughs) COVID's still a thing. But we are now doing these workshops with organizations, being featured at conferences, and having these conversations with college students, high schoolers, and middle schoolers. And we'd love to come hang out with you next. If you want to bring us, you already know what to do. And that's drop us an email at institute at hilltopcc.org. Nick, you just said, you know, and we've learned in previous napcasts together that storytelling really does differ from culture to culture, even though it might have the same underlying message. Um, But not just in the stories being told, I, I like to think, but in the way that it's also being delivered kind of differs from culture to culture. So, Rianne, how would you describe the difference in storytelling from your culture to the way that you've seen it done in this kind of Western society, in the capitalistic society that you, you know, that differs from the collectivist um, one that you just mentioned?
0: Yes, I think, uh, well, I guess my answer would be similar to um, what I said before in that, um, like you said, each culture has so many different um, ways of doing their stories and it really does vary because each culture is so unique and different um, and something like storytelling is going to be a reflection of that culture and so with all of the stories that my my dad's told me um, a lot of them was very nature based it was he would tell us this um, isn't based on um, like oh after we were colonized and the Spanish came this was was based on the stories from a long, long time ago when the people who were first here in Philippines who believed um, in all these nature spirits and gods. These are those stories, um, and it, it was very, very nature based. And the way that um, all of the stories I feel uh, compared to like the stories that I would hear when my family first moved to the states um, would be like. The main character did something that impacted the environment or the community, and then something happened in this good or bad way. And then I remember coming here and in elementary school, I would hear these stories of this main character succeeded for themselves in this way by doing this thing or working really hard. Um, and when I think about that now, I think, oh, that's, that's quite a difference <laughs> um i didn't hear you know those like um individual like success which is really great and exciting and you just do all this hard work and all these things but i didn't really hear that until coming here to the states um and getting to hear other stories from my from my friends or my teachers and then being at home and hearing um different stories from my dad and my and my mom and the rest of my family
1: Oh man, I totally resonate with that because at home I would hear stuff, stories of just being and existing, right? Just typical stuff we did each and every single day. And then uh, we get to school, like traditional K-12 school. And it was always a story about someone rising out of some sort of despair. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, why, why is everything rooted in tragedy? Why can't we build resiliency and tell stories of just,
2: Hey, I woke up and I, you know, I had a Monday. Yeah, and you know, I think the uh, you know you had mentioned capitalistic versus like collectivists and and maybe some people are like, what what does that mean? How can storytelling be that? And what popped up to me is the reliance on visuals, right? And not not impor- um not trusting that children, especially, can themselves just. Have that own picture in their own mind and what it means for them and the way it looks. But we are always like, here, you have this is what it looks like. And then, okay, let's sell that visual. So to me, that's that like capitalistic part where it's like, okay, we got to take the story, we got to put it in a book, we got to put written word to it, we got to give it a visual, and then we got to make money off of it. Rather, it's like what you're saying, Mike. I think the collectivist and sort of the just be, right? A story can just be. And the way the iterations that it goes from brain to mouth or brain, or let's say soul to brain to mouth, and how that goes from individual to individual takes on a different um, visualization in their own brain and not necessarily, okay, it has to look like this. You know, once we translate it out of, from our soul to our brain, to our mouth, and then to our hand, like we don't have to do that. We can just let a story just be a story. Because there's so many great native stories that are out there that um aren't in books. And and I know that can sound kind of counter to all, well, let's represent native culture, but so what's the best way to do that? And then also, like, yeah, native people should make some money off of it, but at what point does it become diluted and then start reaching that capitalistic sort of viewpoint or where the idea of commerce becomes more uh, a little more unnecessary than need be i mean what you just said was beautiful soul to brain to mouth to hand do you think we can put that on a t-shirt and sell that <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> as long as i get like 70 percent <laughs> i feel like um,
1: people just heard that and then they don't get the
2: irony of what i meant so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then we're gonna see somebody else make that shirt or something. <laughs> But it also speaks
1: <laughs> to, to what we talked about before, Nick. Like it's not enough to just bring in native culture or culture of other identities. It's how are you actually building a reciprocal relationship with the people in your community? And if you want more male educators of color, if you want more native people, if you want more of those coming from the Philippines, um, how are you actually building authentic connections and building? their presence and their spirit and their identity in your curriculum and in your building and in your culture, rather than as an add-on. Like, oh, it's Filipino American
2: Heritage Month, it's October, boom, let's tick this box. Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead, Rhea. Oh, I, well, I just wanted to add really quickly because I
0: thought, I thought of it, um, You were saying, um, especially about the idea of, oh, it has to be very visual and we have to draw it out and then sell it. I, um, when I would tell my stories to uh, my kids, I'm thinking of last year with my ocean kiddos, I would tell them, these are my stories and I'm going to tell them with my words. And I did end up drawing a picture because they were really like, but what does it look like? What does the spirit look like? And so I drew, okay, I can try to draw it, but the this is just how I always imagined growing up from me, but very much emphasized to them. This is my one drawing and I'm going to draw it once. <laughs> um, and I'm telling you, I don't know if this is what the spirit looks like, but I just to give them some visual. They felt they really wanted it. Right. Um, but after that one visual, I kept telling them, I'm going to tell you the story through my words this is called oral storytelling um this is how my dad's told these stories um, and it's this practice of just telling you these stories and you can imagine in your minds um what you think they look like you can imagine in your minds whether you want to believe if these spirits are real or not um i always leave it open to them because mm-hmm. my dad did the same for me we would be like okay but is this true spirit really gonna do anything um and my dad would just go Hands up. I don't know. I don't know. You can find out if you want. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, just uh, it like at least for in within my family, um, that a tradition of oral storytelling has just been very much passed on. And each story, each time it's told, there's um, a unique addition or a twist to it with every unique person who tells it.
2: Yeah, and you know what I'm, uh, and what I did want to emphasize, and I think you you really emphasize it for for me is that idea of balance, right? It's I'm not saying like no visuals because you know obviously a lot of indigenous and um, people around the world did rely on visuals and oftentimes at the assistance of a hallucinogen to bring out that visual, <laughs> but um, it it did give us that sort of tangible thing to be like, oh, that's what I'm talking about when this is my interpretation of that spirit of this thing um but yeah it can take on various forms right um so how do you incorporate or were you gonna say something mike no i was just gonna say
1: what what i liked most about that is that you left it open and you were okay not having an answer, which is a lot of things yeah. I say, like lean into that vulnerability and being like, it's okay that I don't have an end result mm-hmm. to this. So that's, that was my one takeaway from it. So thank you so much,
2: Nick. Um, you know, as we're sort of on this thread with how you incorporate in this class, in, in the with your children in the classroom, um, You know, or incorporating the style of storytelling into your practice and not just, you know, during group time or meeting time, story time, but like during transitions. And how do you communicate your expectations to children, you know, to the families and guardians that are and caregivers that are in your class, um, whether that be at family gatherings or conferences?
0: Yeah, I, I, um like to give very clear messages (laughs) so just like and and I for me those clear messages that I come up with and um communicates to to my students or to my families or anyone that I interact with really very much stems from my practice of storytelling seeing the way that my dad could just so um Very easily paints a picture kind of out of nowhere in response to something that has happened or something that is going on. Um, And I really internalize that into I can do that too. And when it comes to me being in the classroom, and um, if it's just during um, transition time, we're getting ready. Uh, like, I I guess the first thing I kind of think of is last year with my ocean kiddos, I told this story about um, the kingfish uh, because I couldn't remember the name in Tagalog. (laughs) Um, But it was like, Okay, basically, it's a long story, but basically the, the kingfish and the ocean, there's like a boundary of protection around the kingfish and everyone in within the kingfish's protection, no one is harmed or hurt or like no one is even able to do it. Um, and like during transitions or during outside time or big body time, I was like, okay, I'm kingfish. If you want to take a break, this is kingfish zone. And if you don't, and if you're done and you want to go run around or jump and stuff, you got to be out of the kingfish zone. <laughs> like, referring back to the stories and all sorts of, um, all those kinds of different ways.
1: <laughs> I like that a lot. I like okay. that. That is brilliant. That's not something that I ever thought of. So, <laughs> huh, look at you. You're a teacher to all. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Mike.
1: <laughs> I, I do wonder, because your classroom last year was called Ocean Room. So do you think that you like or have lean towards picking more ocean-themed or sea-based stories to tell?
0: I wouldn't be surprised if in my unconscious mind <laughs> that's what ended up happening. Actually, with the Kingfish story, it has to do with like a naval battle. Yeah that I talked about because I mentioned my dad was in the Navy and then my ocean kids were like, do you have any stories? And I was like, no, but I have a serious story. <laughs> so yeah.
1: <laughs> and with that, with your father being in the Navy, how do you think that has, and, and living in all sorts of different parts of the world and the country, how do you think that's added to your repertoire, or your ability to tell stories to different
2: audiences, to different abilities?
0: That's a really wonderful question. Um, Thank you, Mike. Just because this is something that I've reflected on a lot when it comes to um, the identity work that I do and reflect for myself and my own growth, Um, it's very, it's, again, very much a part of my foundation if you talk to or meet any other military kids who also grew up moving around a lot um it's like a secondary identity for a lot of us because um moving around a lot I did get to live in a lot of different places I did get my family got to go um from uh being in Philippines to come to the United States with all these opportunities like my dad was able to do that um and thus that idea um, of course the value of hard work and perseverance, um, the values of doing this for your loved ones, um, and also the idea that home is where um, home home is where the heart is, or home is where your family is. I've been in a lot of houses, but each house was home because each house we all lived together as a family. Um, And um, that means a lot to me. That's something that I have really reflected on and come to um, find that it's a really important part of how I approach things, this idea of home and family. I I still don't know how to answer the question, where are you from, kind of. Like, I can kind of say I'm from Seattle, but then people are like, Where where is this this and that and then I go okay I've only been here not very long (laughs)
1: Um, but I
0: I can adapt
1: (laughs) which is my follow up question because as you were speaking I and I knew that you were your family was you're a military child but now I'm interested in hearing about the identity work that you're doing and continuing to do. navigating not being in one space and how has that impacted you and how are you continuing to work through figuring out who you are um because i don't think it's a stagnant place right it's it's a journey so could you speak more about that
0: for sure um yeah it it's continuous work i mean um i Uh, when I was younger and moving to all these different places and being the new kid a lot and being asked, Oh, where, where are you from? Like, where did you, and of course being a person of color, I would say like, I just moved from Florida and they'd be like, where are you really from? Um, but, um, that question, which is so simple of, um, where are you from? I have like A list of possible answers for possible situations depending on what I feel like depending on who I'm talking to and I thought that's ridiculous why don't I know where I'm from why don't I know who I am and from there that's really where that um the work that I did trying to figure out my identity and um like what even who even am I where am I from um figuring that out with just a lot of reflection and a lot of observation. Um, Again, with being able to grow up and meet a lot of different type of people types of people. Um, I've just been able to observe and watch. I see that this person is really comfortable in who they are. And I'm going to ask them questions to how they got there. (laughs) Maybe not as direct, but maybe sometimes very direct, depending on the person. (laughs) Um, And um, I've just gotten really good at asking specific questions to get the answers that I want based on what I observe of them Um, meeting, meeting and talking to you, Mike, or meeting and talking to you, Nick. Like, I'm like, I see this. And I want to ask you about this because I want to see if me inside myself and I needs that too, or wants that too.
1: I I so appreciate that because it wasn't until over the last probably three years where I just viewed myself as a black American. And then, as I dig more into my ancestors and just feeling that disconnect, um, I've, I've switched over to identifying as Afro-Caribbean as a not to just where my forefathers came from and then where my well literal father came from. <laughs> um, so uh, I really do appreciate that as well as just being able to be in community with you two and just asking questions and I'm not necessarily looking for an answer, but just going through that process of learning um, and growing and being vulnerable. And yes, black people do like anime and then being okay <laughs> and comfortable and owning that piece, right? Because so many times people go, well, you can't do that or you can't like that. So um, that, that resistance and then that rejection because that's an inequity, right? Because you're you're stripping that piece of our identity from us, being okay with that and leaning into that.
2: And even like I think uh yeah, that expectation of like like I'm supposed to like soccer because I'm part Mexican. Like right. Yeah. I I think it's the worst sport in the world. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know it's, I, I just never, I never, you know, it's the context, right. in what you grow up in and I, I didn't have much exposure to it, but so it's not like I'm going to be naturally inclined to like <laughs> soccer, for example, or whatever. Um, or even, I remember a lot of my uh, growing up Mexican friends being like, you don't like beans. Like I, it took me until like I was in my thirties to actually like beans. And, uh, yeah, but that was always just sort of like mind boggling for some people. Like, so it's like not uh, what you're, yeah, it's just sort of that expectation of what you're supposed to be like, you know, without considering what someone's individual context is.
1: Join us next episode for part two of Stories Ain't Just for Storytelling, right here on Napcast.